0: Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that, the worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the the future, not to the past, where they don't rest in their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. First Hispanic woman to go to space.
1: These are really challenging, exciting, rewarding careers, and and we want, <laughs> you know, we want more um, Latinos, Latinas to to be considering these careers and going in.
0: Former director of NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston.
1: It was an amazing job, and and because we have a talented workforce and and just an incredible history there at Johnson Space Center. So that's the home of human spaceflight for the country.
0: This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Elena Ochoa. Now, here's your host, Howard Wolf. Stanford's alumni are an exceedingly diverse group of people with avocations and vocations that run the gamut. We have actors and athletes, CEOs and sea captains, stay at home parents and stage managers, physicians and fitness coaches. The lives our alumni lead are as varied as the variety of trees on campus. But there is one profession in the Stanford alumni constellation that stands out for me. We haven't cornered the market for this profession, but we sure do well. And I talk here about astronauts. Stanford has spawned nearly 20 astronauts who have traveled in space over the past 50 years. And these pioneers have made the university proud beyond compare. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders is one of these Stanford astronauts, Ellen Ochoa. Ellen was the first Hispanic woman in the world go to space when she served on a nine-day mission aboard the Shuttle Discovery in 1993. She then went on three other space flights, ultimately logging nearly 1,000 hours in space. As if that weren't enough, after her space mission days were over, Ellen became the director of NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, serving in that post from 2013 to 2018. Few people in this country know more about space travel and NASA than as today's guest. Alan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, glad to be here. So when
0: exactly did you know that you wanted to become an astronaut? I mean, every kid thinks they <laughs> want to become an astronaut, but for you, uh, when did that decision come alive?
1: Well, it was absolutely when I was at Stanford and as a grad student. Okay, so you weren't one of these kids who wanted to be an astronaut from the time she was really little? Well, Howard, you have to remember, there were no women astronauts. Nobody would ever ask a girl, do you want to grow up to be an astronaut? That wasn't part of the conversation. Ah. So it was only um, a couple years before I came to Stanford when that first class that included women and minority astronauts were selected, and they were selected specifically for this new vehicle that was being developed, the space shuttle. And my first year here, when I was getting my master's, is when the shuttle flew for the first time. And it could do so many different things. It was you know, obviously very different than a capsule. And it, a lot of what they were going to do were science and engineering research. And, you know, I was headed toward being a research engineer. So it was combining that with space that that really got my interest.
0: So was there someone that put this idea in your mind? Or was it a presentation that you saw by NASA? Or what is it that peaked that yeah,
1: interest? Yeah, well, I, I would say a couple years after it flew for the first time, there were two things that happened. One was that Sally Ride flew. Oh, yes. So that was a huge deal. Yes. um first American woman and she had been a physics major like I had been she had gone to Stanford I was at Stanford
0: great role I mean model. that was
1: really kind of the first time when it was like oh well maybe it maybe it is somebody like me where is something before, I can do. yeah you didn't really think of it and then also that same year NASA said we're going to open up applications for three months and we plan to select a class the following year in 84 and I heard about that from a couple of grad student friends well pretty much everybody in the aeroastro department i was in double e but one of my professors was in aero astro so i knew a lot of those students they were all like sending in their applications and i remember hearing them talk about it and i said so that's what you do like you just fill out an application you send it in i really had no idea like how do you actually apply so that was the first time i wrote nasa and said you know I, I'm interested. Please tell me about the process. And then I decided to wait till I finish my Ph.D. before actually sending it in.
0: All right. So we have this perception in America of astronauts. And I think most of that impression is informed by Hollywood. <laughs> and Hollywood's impression of astronauts are, uh, their, their impressions are as follows. Swashbuckling, crazy, risk-taking test pilots who then become astronauts. And, but you're an undergraduate physics major a PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford. That's not exactly the prototypical Hollywood version of an astronaut. So does Hollywood just get it wrong? Have they bamboozled us?
1: Well, I I think the original movies they were making were about the Apollo program. And, of course, those astronauts, for the most part, were were military test pilots. Certainly all the first initial astronauts were military test pilots, and that was just the group they had decided – You know, this is where we're going to select from. Now, one of the later Apollo groups uh, was a group of scientists. You know, think Jack Schmidt, you know, on Apollo 17. He was a geologist. So they did end up selecting a few uh, scientists before the end of that program. Uh, But, you know, fast forward a few years. Now the space shuttle's in development, as I mentioned, really going to be involved in research. So that first class selected for shuttles in 1978 They looked much more broadly, engineers, scientists, medical doctors. So really for 40 years, it's been a much broader group.
0: So to start, it was, we need somebody who can drive this plane. Right. right?
1: Or or at the very least, they've been in operational situations. They have risked their lives. Um, So they've been in situations where they can probably react. But then as time went on,
0: they wanted people who could do the experiments in space that really needed to be done. All right. So tell us about that moment in 1991 when you were in fact designated an astronaut? What went through your mind? I mean, what was that moment like and what were you thinking?
1: Well, it was really the year before, 1990, Ah. when I uh, got the call that I was selected to join the Corps. But when you first go in, you're called an astronaut candidate. And it's only after your first year of training, assuming everything goes well, that you sort of move up to the designation of astronaut. But it's that initial selection. and I, I got a phone call in January of nineteen ninety, having interviewed a few months before that. And it's it's one of those moments in your life where you know my life is gonna change. Forever. Like forever. Right. Exactly. Because you I was will always very, be very, known... very aware of my whole life is changing basically. Right. Because you'll this always be known call. as an astronaut. Assuming you get to fly, which there's no guarantees. Oh, that's uh, interesting. What percentage
0: of astronauts that are chosen?
1: Most. Most do. Fly. Okay. Um, but it always depends on what's actually going on with the space program. You know, how many seats are available. And also, you know, medical things can uh, can crop up, which keep people from flying as okay, well. Okay, so let's talk so. about medical things. Okay.
0: I'm claustrophobic. I get nervous <laughs> riding on roller coasters. I get seasick on boats. And then I think about the training that you went through uh, to become an astronaut. Um, so tell me about that experience, because you were— scientist i mean you were an electrical engineer right. you had a phd in electrical engineering you weren't one of these swashbuckling <laughs> test pilots <laughs> i but that was training... not even
1: a girl scout so <laughs> okay here we go
0: oh have you shared yeah. that with sylvia Acevedo? <laughs> so so what was that training like i mean we see that in the movies as right, well right it looks pretty well intense.
1: claustrophobia would be a problem i'll just say that right up front oh, and I they knew do, there was a reason they do test you for that in the interview process so because that that is definitely important. But I'll tell you, I get seasick too. And I, as you can see, I really didn't have an operational um, background. But the training, it's a whole variety of things. And a lot of it was very familiar to me. A lot of it was like being in school. I mean, we got these workbooks to read through. You're learning about all the different shuttle systems, as well as, you know, not everybody comes with a physics background. So you might not have had orbital mechanics or, you know, any of those things. So, you Know reading through the workbooks, we had classes, um, and then we were in trainers where we start to learn how to operate, you know, everything inside the shuttle. That part all felt pretty familiar. I've been in school, engineering, yeah, I'd been in school, you know, you were a, a good, good part student. of my life, but then there was this other part where, um, you know, we had to learn how to land in a parachute, and we got, um, you know dropped into the ocean you know in a parasailing kind of way with a parachute and you know how do you get yourself into a raft and how do you get lifted out with a helicopter and um flying in the T38s which are high performance jets they're two seater trainer versions of F5s so that was all pretty new and I wasn't really sure you know what that would be like but um it, it was all actually mostly really fun and the thing i found was that my fellow astronauts were really helpful. So, a lot of the people in my class, I came in with a group of 22 other people. A lot of them were in the military, a um, little more than half. And they'd done lots of these things before. A lot of them were pilots. And, um, and so, you know, they would help talk me through it and, and give me tips as we were going off and, and doing things that I had never done before. So,
0: And you had no question in your mind that you'd be capable of doing all these. Oh, I I did have
1: a question. I didn't really admit that I had that question. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, this was all new and different. But once they select you, the idea is we want you to fly. You know, we are training you to go fly in space. It's not a weed out process. The weed weed out process process is before you get that phone call. So so I think that makes a huge difference.
0: So it's not like Bud's training in SEALs, right? <laughs> in, in the SEALs, they're trying to weed you yeah, out and yeah, find yeah. only the ones yeah. who...
1: No, they want you to be successful, which is good, uh, you know, and, it, and you feel that. You don't feel like people are wanting you to fail. They I want love you how to you succeed. said it was
0: it was new and fun, not new and scary.
1: <laughs> well, there may have been a, a few little, scary moments. A
0: little bit scary moments along the way. All right, so in 1993, do I have that right? Yes. You went on your first of four missions yes. uh, in space, a nine-day voyage on the shuttle Discovery. Yes. All right, so you've trained for years. You've been anticipating this moment. You're sitting there in the shuttle in Discovery. Tell me what that felt like (laughs) as you were about to take off because that has got to be the biggest, both high and scariest moment of anyone's life.
1: It, yeah, it's it's quite a moment. Now, fortunately, you've spent a lot of time in the simulator, yes. um, and specifically for the launch phase, because there's a lot that can go wrong in that first eight and a half minutes. And I was on the flight deck uh, for launch. So so you've spent a lot of time, and then you've actually been in the shuttle before on your back, um, usually about a month ahead of your launch, so that you've you've gone through that process at least once of actually crawling in, crawling onto your back, getting strapped in, seeing what that feels like and looks like. So I think everything that NASA does helps to get you to a point where you you sit there and you think, okay, I've been here before, even though you, you haven't ever launched before, but right. I've been here before. Now, the launch itself is pretty hard to simulate. We do get um, – Uh, a ride in a centrifuge that simulates the changes in the g-forces during those eight and a half minutes but you don't get the vibration of the solid rocket boosters and you know just everything going on you know in your helmet with with the noise and the calls and all that so the first time you put it all together it's actually happening and it's it's exciting but exciting or terrifying I didn't find it terrifying in the physical sense, you know, where I'm I'm worried something's going to go wrong. It for, I would say I had the very same feeling that most astronauts have, which is all like I I've got a job to do and I need to do it right and I'm prepared and, to do this. And the only thing I'm really nervous about for the whole mission is and I'm am I going to do everything right. Um, you know, I was going to be operating the robot arm and and deploying um, a science satellite into space and then grabbing it out of space a couple days later. And it's like, like if I screw that up. You, we've lost the whole <laughs> sci- that whole science satellite part of the mission. So, you know, you're just really focused, really focused on trying to be very, you know, think through all of your training and be very methodical about everything that you're doing.
0: This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. More with Ellen Ochoa. Astronaut, next on Sirius XM Insight 121. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with astronaut Ellen Ochoa. So if you go online and you look up Ellen Ochoa, the first sentence always says the same thing. The first American Latina in space. And... Everywhere I read, it (laughs) talked about your Latina background Mm -hmm. and that you were the first astronaut of this nature to go into space. Why is that designation important to you? And what have you seen that designation do for other young women who follow?
1: I think it's more important for others than for me. To me, I just felt like an an individual, and I need to do a good job no matter what, just because very few people get this opportunity, and they're counting on every crew member to do their job well. But, um, of course, you don't have to look very far to realize there aren't a lot of Hispanics, particularly Hispanic women, um, in the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, They're way underrepresented compared to their population, and compared to their population in the workforce, so and and yet these are really challenging, exciting, rewarding careers, and and we want, <laughs> you know, we want more um, Latinos, Latinas to to be considering these careers and going in, and so that is why it had become it's become important to have that label because here's an example of somebody that kids in school can think about. You know, she, maybe she wasn't that different than me. It's kind of like what I thought about Sally Ride. Oh, we have a few things in common, and something that I would have thought was completely impossible, someone maybe not that different from me is doing it, and so maybe it isn't completely impossible. And when you impossible. were a girl, young
0: girl, there was no role model.
1: Not, no, nothing But if you're a young like Hispanic that. girl, like
0: that. she now yeah. sees you yeah. and says, I can do right. that. I can be an astronaut.
1: And even if somebody's goal isn't to become an astronaut, a lot of it is just she did something really hard. She set a goal, and she was able to achieve something. So maybe I can set a goal and I can achieve something. It may be in a completely different field, but it's you know it's just a different. It's a mindset that that other people can help with.
0: Interesting. So you mentioned Sally Ride moments ago, mm-hmm. and here you are, and we're sitting here on the Stanford <laughs> University campus. Right. What is it about Stanford that has spawned so many astronauts? I'm thinking there were almost 20 astronauts who have come out of Stanford who have flown in space. I think Purdue has this as well. Um, but what is it about Stanford yeah. that, seems to, um, that seems to create all these astronauts?
1: Well, and one of the really interesting things about Stanford is that more women astronauts have come from Stanford than any school. Well, that's ten,
0: even more ten, interesting.
1: Ten women astronauts, and a lot of them were firsts. Sally Ride was the first. First ever. Mae Jemison, was first African American. Um, Eileen Collins, who was in my class, was the first woman shuttle shuttle pilot and then shuttle commander. Um, Susan Helms was the first woman from the military in space. Um, there was me, um, Barbara Morgan, edu- first educator astronaut in space. So it's not just women astronauts, but it's pretty incredible. Um,
0: there's I, something I, in the water?
1: <laughs> what was it? Well, Howard, you are very familiar with Stanford. I think you know. I mean, you come on campus and people they have all sorts of ideas and dreams, and so many go off and make them happen. Anything's so, possible. So it doesn't feel so strange to be a person on the Stanford campus thinking, I'd like to grow up and be an astronaut, or you know, that's what I would like to become. Whereas I think in other places I would just thought, like, I can't even tell anybody. I mean, it's just so ridiculous.
0: <laughs> but here, dreams are—it,
1: yeah—reality waiting it, to happen. Yeah, exactly.
0: Interesting. All right. So last year you retired. Is it was the last year? Yes. Yes. Okay. But for the prior what five or six years,
1: mm-hmm. five you had and been, a
0: half. You had five and a half years. You had been the director of NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Yes. Now I want to make sure people understand what that <laughs> job is. So I want you to tell us a little bit about that job because it is a huge huge job of tremendous importance and how big is the operation what's it like to make that transition from being the astronaut to the administrator general manager
1: well it, it was an amazing job and and because we have a talented workforce and and just an incredible history there at johnson space center so that's the home of human space flight for the country uh, and we have uh, a little under, say, 3,000 government employees and another six or 7,000 contractor employees. So it's a, it's a group of about 10,000 folks. And, of course, we have all the astronauts. Um, we have mission control and all the people that staff mission control, the people that plan and, and train us for flights and actually help us execute those flights. We have a large engineering group. And uh, they have been involved in designing and developing and testing human spacecraft since the very beginning. Um, we have the all the operational human spaceflight programs. And, of course, the one that is operational right now is the International Space Station. So that's headquartered at Johnson, as well as developing new spacecraft. And there is a new... Beyond low Earth orbit spacecraft under development called Orion. That, Beyond
0: low. Yes, earth Yes. So right orbit. now we
1: fly in low Earth orbit. We want to sh- go okay. to the moon. We want to go to Mars. I see. I see. And the spacecraft that you need uh, is Orion, and, and Johnson Space Center is is responsible for developing that. Okay,
0: but but here you are training to be and then actually operating as an astronaut, going up on space missions, four of them, with what a thousand hours in the in flight, right? Then you become the head of essentially a 10,000-person operation with what kind of budget?
1: It's about $4.5 billion.
0: $4.5 billion a year. Mm -hmm. That's a big transition.
1: (laughs) Well, I didn't go directly from astronaut to that.
0: You had something in between. Yes,
1: I had some other management roles at Johnson Space Center. So I was uh, first deputy and then director of an organization there called the Flight Crew Operations Directorate. And that's the group, the organization that manages the astronaut office and our aircraft ops division. So that's like you
0: used to play for the NBA Uh, and then you became a coach, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then I moved up to deputy center director and And then then center director. Yes, yes, I see. (laughs) All right. So
0: you can't pick up a newspaper or magazine these days without seeing a running debate about the amount of money that we spend as a country on NASA. And a lot of people suggest and argue that we overspend in terms of NASA and space exploration when we have so many problems here domestically um, in our country, whether it's poverty, um, housing, you know, issues of inequality. Mm-hmm. But we spend, as you said, $4.5 billion a year on just the Johnson – Mm -hmm. Um, Space uh, uh, Center, and I'm just curious, what's the argument for spending that kind of money on an annual basis with NASA?
1: Well, first of all, let's put the amount in perspective. So what percentage of the federal budget do you think goes to NASA? And this would be more than just human spaceflight. This is everything NASA does, planetary missions, Earth science, aeronautics research. Oh,
0: I hate this when guests ask me a question. <laughs> One-tenth of one percent. I don't know. Something like that.
1: It's, it's a half of one percent. Half of one percent. So 1%. during the Apollo program, it was uh, at the peak of the Apollo program it was about four percent, a little over four oh. percent. So we're you know, significantly less than that. Um, with quite a wide wider portfolio, so it's really not that much money, you know, half of one percent of the federal budget. And I, here's so why do we have a national program, right? You know, why? What are we why trying are, to achieve? What, yeah, there's a variety of things that I think NASA has always brought. So one of them, obviously, is scientific discovery. Uh, One of them has been just leadership in general. This is a new frontier. Uh, America has wanted to lead. Uh, We didn't actually lead right at the beginning, as you know, and it became a race. Um, Even after it wasn't a race, though, we lead in a way that now involves global collaboration. Of course, there's 15 countries that form the core of the International Space Station, and we've actually involved more than 100 countries in one way or another. So there's that global collaboration and leadership. Um, Everything that we spend money on uh, supports industry here in the United States. So so it's not like we go and... Put billions of dollars into space. We're spending them here on the ground in good jobs in science and engineering, and a lot of what NASA does has direct uh, benefit to people on Earth, either in the medical fields or, you know, you look at how we recycle water on the space station, and those same processes are being used in rural areas around the world to provide clean water. So there's lots of. Um,
0: so is an analogy much like, like much that. like the federal government spends a lot of money with universities every year for research, a lot of that then spawns industries and companies Absolutely. that provide jobs. Absolutely. So you can think of it
1: as spending, but to me, the better word is investment, because okay. the economy 30 years from now is going to be based on investments that we make today, whether it's science research or whether it's development of new technologies. And the things that we do in space are hard, so we challenge ourselves. So we do develop new some of its new technology, some of its new processes that end up being used in a lot of different ways. And then I would say the final thing it really brings, which kind of brings us back to an earlier question, is is inspiration. You know what NASA does is really hard, and people take inspiration from that, and not just for more things in space, but just, Hey, if we can do this, if we have you as know, we can do anything,
0: right. and, and it's something that crosses boundaries, right? It does. Doesn't matter which it side really of the aisle does. you're on, you'll be yes. proud that we're going to go to. Well, that leads to the next question: Why are we so obsessed with Mars? <laughs> Everyone talks about wanting to go to Mars. First off, it takes a really long time to get
1: there—several uh, months. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. And it costs a little bit of money. <laughs> what is it that is so exciting, enchanting? So, interesting about going to Mars?
1: Well, a lot of it is scientifically um, because, so here's this rocky planet, and um, a few billion years ago, um, Earth and Mars were probably not that different, and Mars had a, a, an atmosphere that maybe wasn't too dissimilar from what Earth has now. Mars lost most of its atmosphere, and with that, you know, comes extremely harsh conditions, which certainly life as we know it right now. Either can't exist or, you know, we don't know exactly whether it has all the right ingredients. So part of it is, you know, is that in Earth's future? And the more we learn about Mars, the more we can probably understand um, where Earth is is headed in the future as well.
0: So 100 years from now, my guess is you and I won't be around. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Do you think we'll have a colony on Mars?
1: Yes. I, wow. I do think we will. That's I don't cool. know if it's... You know, I think whether it's sort of just a a self-sustaining colony on its own or it's really, hey, there's an outpost that's being supported by governments here because we think it's important to understand how you can live other places. And by the way, we're getting a lot of science in return. Um, I would say probably a little more of that second um, scenario.
0: In our final 30 seconds together, if there are young people listening to this show right now, whether on Sirius XM or on a podcast, what advice would you give to them in 30 seconds about how to become an astronaut?
1: (laughs) well, of course, initially study some kind of technical field, some field of science or engineering or medicine, something like that. But I would say also don't overlook the other aspects of communication, of teamwork. Astronauts need to be both good followers and good leaders, and not everybody gets that, but you can get that through sports or music or or other activities like that, and you'll find out that's quite common um, in the astronaut corps to have these other... Uh, activities where they have learned qualities like that.
0: Ellen, thank you so much for being on the show. I learned so much. And I think in my next life, I'm going to be an astronaut.
1: (laughs) It's pretty awesome.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM Insight. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app.